1: Both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing
0: and sometimes interesting background stories. So, I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company, will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community, both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to Commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises.com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises. Now, will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today for today's show is Bob Harris. Bob is a uh, senior counsel, and partner with the law firm of Lurch Early and Brewer located in Bethesda, Maryland. His focus jurisdiction is Montgomery County. He's worked with most of the major developers in the county that doing larger mixed use or office commercial projects in the the region as well as some uh, PUDs in the marketplace as well. Uh, Bob started his career back in 1980 after graduating law school at uh, George Washington University. He started in the trucking law business and then moved into land use law when he joined the firm of Wilkes-Artis, Hedrick & Lane in Bethesda, then transitioned to Holland & Knight as the practice moved over there, the other law firm, and then he joined Lord Churley when Holland & Knight decided to close their Bethesda office and continued on. So he's been in Montgomery County quite a long time in practicing land use law. Bob is very tenacious. He's a a go-getter. He really understands the legal profession. I met him through the Urban Land Institute. And so he's been very engaged in several third-party activities in uh, in the community uh, outside of the legal practice. he talked a lot about the Socratic method in law school. He also talked about his fulfillment in zoning law, which he finds he takes pride in because of his the properties he's helped engender. And he also realizes that's paying it forward to future generations to see buildings being built based on his efforts. Bob discusses the importance of negotiation in law, dealing with opposing parties and sometimes even clients themselves. He highlights the increasing complexity of regulations and the burdens they place on development, especially here in Montgomery County when laws are changing and it's getting more challenging to do business. Bob also emphasizes the importance of maintaining strong client relationships and building connections with decision makers and regulators in the community. He shares some anecdotes from his career highlighting the lessons he learned from them. Bob also loves to give back, as I mentioned earlier. He's committed to his work and finds it mentally stimulating, and he gives back to community in many different ways. And he also set up a scholarship in his son's name at Gonzaga High School, where he went. He has the most unique sign, billboard sign answer that I've had so far, where he actually physically put a sign on the beltway when he was in high school, competing against St. John's when he was in Gonzaga. So I thought that was kind of cool as well. So without further ado, enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Bob Harris. So
1: Bob Harris, welcome to Icons of DC real estate. Thank you for joining me today. I'm honored to be your guest. Thank you. So you are the first land use attorney that I have interviewed for the podcast. Could you describe your role at Lurch Early & Brewer and your focuses day-to-day, Bob? I
2: I, I sure can. I'll I'll start, however, with a prefatory remark. You, you, like I, have been very active in ULI for a number of years. And a number of years ago, they started an annual practice of a Lifetime Achievement Award that they would honor people in the real estate world. I think it was Ben Jacobs who was honored one year, right. and, he, and, and he said, "You know, gi- giving me a lifetime achievement award is implying that I'm done, and and I'm not done, and and so I, I feel a little bit the same way as that. You know, being called an icon in real estate when I'm not done is is, is an honor, but it's you know perhaps an over a, a statement of my achievements. But I'm happy to launch into it. So." Lord Shirley Brewer, yes. I'm proud to be here uh, at Lord Shirley. I've I've been here now 12 years. Uh, I I joined uh, at that time and I was made the practice group leader for the land use group, which was relatively small at that time. Um, I've since passed that torch on to others and, and now am a senior attorney in a group of 12 land use attorneys, which is, you know, an amazing number of people practicing land use, 10 of us in Montgomery County exclusively and two in Prince George's County that share some in Montgomery County, which is itself a little bit of a statement about land use in Montgomery County. I'm not sure there are that many attorneys practicing 100% land use in the District of Columbia or, or in Fairfax County. I, I might be wrong, but it, it, it is a statement perhaps of the comprehensive nature of our land use practice here, which I, I think you want to get into that later. We can talk about Absolutely. that later. Um, but I, I, I am still active, especially in in major matters that, you know, uh, the, the the ones that require some heavy lifting. I love that. But at the same time, I have the 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 blessing of working with younger attorneys who you know uh, you know are inspired by what the firm has done, what I've done, and they are making their own history now. So so I serve as a mentor to them. I'm a historical resource, you know, telling them you know old man stories about how things were <laughs> and, and 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 why things are the way they are. But then the the, the greatest role I have here really is being kind of an, a strategist or an advisor to the younger attorneys they knock on my door frequently or now zoom me up on the screen to say hey what do you think about this and it's really cool to be able to provide advice like that that's great
1: that's great so bob tell us a little bit about your origins your youth and you know, what your parents did for you
2: sure i'm i'm proud of my youth but it is and my upbringing But I suspect it's measurably different than most of your guests. I grew up near the University of Maryland. I was one of six kids. I was the second oldest. I had a sister one year older than I. I'll come back to her because that relates to who I am and what I am. But my my mom was a a stay-at-home mom. My family was totally blue collar. My father was an auto mechanic by trade. Then he, later on in life, he became service manager for a Chevrolet dealership. But mm-hmm. it was all about cars. And he, I, I learned he, he built our, own, our first house with his own hands. Wow. But so, you know, I admired what he did. I, I never saw anybody come to our house to fix a darn thing from the dishwasher to the roof to whatever. He fixed it. And, you know, I I learned from him, you know, those things. And I, you know, really loved doing it. If you had asked me when I was 16 what I was going to do, I probably would have said I'm going to be an auto mechanic. Um, And lo and behold, I'm not. Well, not much of one. So, you know, what what I learned from them, though, and and this is not exclusive to blue-collar people but hard work and you know i see that all around from all kinds of people my mom raised six kids zero help we had no nearby relatives we didn't hire people to come in and do the cleaning or the cooking or anything you know she did it and my dad to make extra money to make the ends meet when he'd get home from his job at the chevy dealer many nights, even in the cold of winter, he would be out on our carport fixing one of the neighbor's cars for a few extra bucks. Um, wow. And, you know, it it inspired me. I I, I learned to, to work hard from the youngest days. When I was 12 years old, I got a paper route uh-huh. that I worked seven days a week delivering papers and loved it. At about the same time, one of my neighbors, his father was a maintenance guy at a, a hospital and th- they had extra lawn equipment. Uh, and so he arranged for me to go out there and I bought a, a small piece of junk riding mower for $3, <laughs> uh, which I then started lawn mowing in my neighborhood. There you go. At, at 12 years old, making darn good money i blew it all on candy and stupid stuff i think but but i was you know in my mind self-sufficient when i your parents supportive of your initiative totally you know my parents were not highly instructive in terms of what to do or whatever yes they they pushed for academic achievement they pushed for hard work but it was more lead by example Uh Um, so you
1: saw them and said I'm going to work hard too. You know.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and I admired them. My mother was a voracious reader, and oh. so so and and she would help me with my writing. And and my dad, as I say, was Mister Fix It, and so I learned how to do all of that. But you know, so I was anxious to get a real job. As soon as I turned 16, I got a part-time job as a waiter at Hot Chops Restaurant. Which uh-huh. was was hard work, but it was great. The, the, I think the minimum wage at the time was a dollar and a quarter an hour. Is this the and one in Bethesda? Is no, this one, one was Bethesda? in Hillendale on uh, New Hampshire Hillandale. Avenue, right at the beltway. Okay, sure, huh? Yeah. And they gave me great instruction. Marriott was, you know, very well run operation, and oh, sure, gave me instruction how to do it. So while other friends I had who were getting part time jobs at a dollar and a quarter an hour, I was averaging about three dollars and fifty cents an hour because I was on tips. I only made 50 cents an hour. The minimum wage for tip workers then was 50 cents an hour. And I was making three and 50 or so, which, you know, I don't want to get off. This is not our show, but all this stuff about raising the wages for tipped workers just irritates me because if they're, <laughs> if they're any good at their job, they're making way more than minimum oh, wage.
1: Absolutely.
2: So, yeah. so, so I, I did that later on. I, you know, had a neighbor who had a, a construction company, small construction company and you know that was going to pay even more than the, the waiter so I I became an apprentice carpenter and, and and made good money throughout college
1: that's great that's awesome so the, the 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 hard work ethic you saw as a child and took it from there so then you got you went out to the University of Maryland talk about why Maryland and did you look elsewhere or was that kind of just because you grew up near it, that was your ideal place or what? Yeah. Uh, let me
2: interject one sort of waypoint on that sure. mission to, to the University of Maryland. I, I, I grew up in neighborhood. All my the neighbors were going to public schools. My yep. sisters and I and my brother, we all went to the Catholic elementary school oh, you did? Um, okay. on New Hampshire Avenue, St. Camillus. Mm-hmm. And so w- that went through eighth grade. But again, all my friends were in junior high school, and they were going to sock hops and all these cool things that they did in the public schools and stuff. And, you know, they were my friends. I wanted to be with them. So when Catholic high schools start in ninth grade. So I I came home, and I said that I wanted to go to the local public school with my friends. And my older sister, the one a year older than I, you know, said, absolutely not. And I had such great respect for her because, you know, jumped around here a little bit. When she was in kindergarten and I was still at home, uh-huh. she would she would come home from school and insist that I sit down and she would teach me whatever she learned that day. So that when I started school, I could already read. And you know, and it was it it gave me huge respect for her. And I listened to 100% of what she said throughout my life. And so when she said, you got to go to Catholic school and not only are you just going to Catholic school, you're going to Gonzaga because that's the best. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, Linda, you got it. Okay. So I applied and got in there. Where did she go? She went to Regina high school. It's no longer in existence. It's a Catholic girl school that was on Riggs road in Adelphi. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, but I but I followed in her footsteps. In in fact, we were academic competitors because I remember when you took the PSAT exam, you know, mm-hmm. she she did it the year before I did, it and she came back and when she got her score, it was ninety-eight and whatever. I don't remember that's the smart lady. Yeah. And and so I took it and I got like a ninety seven or something. I was <laughs> I was peeved. I said <laughs> I, I wanted to beat her. Funny. And I couldn't quite do it. But so she went to University of Maryland. As I mentioned, we lived so close by there that it, it it was an easy thing to do. And, you know, apropos my modest upbringing, I had to pay for 100% of my college. Now, you know, kids can't do that today. College costs have gone up so astronomically. astronomically. But at that point in time, you know, Maryland was Six hundred fifty dollars a year. I lived at Good home state, yeah. b- because mm-hmm. it was it was nearby there, and so I was able to pay hundred percent of my own tuition, and I did it by I, I would work my construction job Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. I only took classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If there was a class that was only on Tuesday or Thursday it didn't matter whether it was the most important class and I wouldn't take it I'm working then damn it you know uh classes on Monday Wednesday and Friday and it worked you know but in, in, at university of maryland I did take a business law course I still remember the professor bert lee and it was so fun that it was my first exposure to law I didn't know a lawyer I, I didn't right. I never needed a lawyer no lawyers in my family very few college graduates in the in the extended family but i was intrigued by the business law course i didn't do anything about it at the time but it, it kind of stuck in the back of my mind until what later. part of that course
1: fascinated you? because it's a pretty diverse that's a diverse practice there so yeah. was there an aspect of it you remember that was it contracts was it torts was it
2: <laughs> property what was it that it, you the most. It, it, uh, contracts primarily, uh, but the overall fact that there is a law for everything, right. right? And and there's a right and a wrong. It's it's not like Ooh, okay. it's not like it's not like science. Ethics There there are, there are different ways to look at something. It's not so much anyway. So In the law. ethics has interested you. Yeah, it, it it did, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if I was. Argumentative at the time. Uh, I certainly have become that over the years in my profession. That's your but job, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But but I did like the fact that there, you know, somebody's right and somebody's wrong, you know, in, in, in almost everything. And and so it it was it was just kind of fun, you know, learning about property rights. You know that you know you, you if, if, if adverse possession, if of course, you know. Yeah, wait a minute. It wasn't your land, but you used it for twenty years, and nobody objected. It's yours now. So, whoa, that is so cool. How about
1: the history of property law too, going back to England? Oh, yeah, it's fascinating.
2: It it really is. Yeah, it you know really tells what our country is about. You know, Mm -hmm. and and we've got some dark spots on our resume, of, of course. Yes, but one of the bright spots is our inheritance of british common law and you know which really is built on the greeks and the romans even and oh, so yeah rich sure. history mm-hmm.
1: so business law fascinating so then that triggered the law school interest. Of that.
2: Is that yeah. although of apropos my um you know, reverse background law school didn't happen immediately i oh yeah you know, okay well I, I i'll confess now well i've confessed before as well i wasn't a great student in college okay, okay. because number one i was working a lot mm-hmm. number right. two i was partying a lot
1: <laughs> and <laughs> maryland and, had that reputation yeah yeah well I,
2: I i did spend a few hours on in the oh, route one scene there you know and, uh, and there were dorms there that were well known for Partying there, yeah. I I, I had a good time in college, uh, but uh, maybe too good a time. But Uh the so you know, I I didn't have good grades, and I wasn't inspired. I just wanted to get out and make some money. So Mm -hmm. I I I took a job as a salesman for the National Brewing Company out of Baltimore. Oh sure. I, I was a local salesman here in the Washington area. And and Daddy Bo. Yeah, and and so it was it was it, it was you know a great experience. You know, I could bring the beer truck home after a special event <laughs> and my the guys I was living in a house with we'd drink up the rest of the beer and stuff. Oh, that's,
1: that's incredible. It,
2: it it was it was a great time. I, I was yeah, I was doing crazy things like racing dirt bikes at the time and playing rugby and you know. You know, it was it was party time. I I, 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 but a couple years of that, and I said, "Wait a minute, Bob, you know, wake up, wake up!" You know, this is not a long term path. You know, you, you, uh, you need to do more. And my older sister, the inspiration of my life, uh, as much as my parents had been at of college a few years, and she called me up one day and said, "Hey, guess what, Bob?" I decided to apply to law school, and I'm going to start law school in the fall. I said, whoa, that's a cool idea. I remember business law. It was really fun. Do you think I could do it? Absolutely. So I applied to law school. I got in and decided I'm going to make something in my life. I'm not just going to drink beer and party all the time. And, and so, you know, because of my uncertainty about whether I was going to succeed at that effort or not, I applied to the University of Baltimore because, number one, it was relatively easy to get into. She had gone there as well, and it was inexpensive. And paying for it myself was a key factor. She, after her first year there, she transferred to Catholic University because she wanted to go to a better school, no discredit the University of Baltimore. And so after my first year, I was fourth in my class, ranked fourth in my class that year. And I said, you got this. And so I applied to GW to transfer there. That way I would be able to work close to home. I was living in Highsville at the time, and and and, and they gave me a... Uh, half scholarship as well to attend, so I could afford it. And it it, it worked out amazingly well.
1: That's great. Did you look at, like, did this Maryland? Maryland has a law school, don't they?
2: They do have a law school, but that's in Baltimore. And again, oh. I, was, I, I was living in Hyattsville. And, oh, okay. and, and so you know, one year of commuting up there, I, I put up with. But the other yeah. thing is, you know, you never know where life's going to take you. I got married after my first year of law school, and and then if that wasn't enough of a change, I had a child after the second year of law school. Oh my goodness! Law school, as you know, is three years. Yes. So I'm in the middle of my law school career, yes. and along comes our first son. That I, I'm, I'm working as a law clerk at a law firm downtown, trying to support our family. My wife was in architecture school at the time at Catholic University and really wanted to become an architect. She continued in architecture school for about six months after our son was born. And I would stay up late at night. She'd do, she'd, the architecture students, I don't know if you know how they do it, but they have projects. They build models oh, out sure. of styrofoam yeah. and all that stuff, or at least they did then. Now it's probably all on a computer. But I would finish my law school reading late in the evening, and then she and I cut styrofoam and make models of things <laughs> until till the wee hours. Wow, that that went on for you know a, a little while, and we both said this isn't going to work. She volunteered to give up her education, uh, so that I could go on, and it's worked out amazingly well.
1: That's great. So you left GW, and then how did you enter the law practice?
2: Okay. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, I was working as a, a law clerk at a law firm downtown in law school, mm-hmm. and th- they did, or at least the group with which I was associated, did transportation law. Back then, trucking companies needed to get Certificates of convenience and necessity from the Interstate Commerce Commission, and they were regulated by the ICC. Complaints were brought against them when they something went wrong, and and that sort of thing. And so, the the group I was with did transportation law. And so, you know, once I graduated, they offered me a a a, a regular attorney job there, which you know I needed the job. Of course, I took it immediately, and I did that for about four years. But the the clients I was representing were trucking companies all over the country, and you know I rarely saw a client. You know communications were by fax or phone or, or letter. The the work I was doing was not at all visible to me or to anybody else. It was you know getting them a certificate of public convenience and necessity so they could call widgets from Spokane to <laughs> Portland or something, you know, and you know. It paid the bills, but it wasn't real, real rewarding. And about that same time, I don't know if you remember the magazine Regardis. Oh, the sure. Area. Okay. Yeah, Bill Regardi. Yeah, yep. ex- absolutely. Well, yep. you you may recall every year Bill would publish an issue of I forget whether it's the fifty or the hundred wealthiest people in the Washington area, and it'd be a little blurb about each one of them. And I read it several years while I was. Doing this trucking law. And when I looked at it, I said, you know, this is interesting. Almost every one of these people, that's one of the wealthiest people, either made their money in real estate or they invested it in real estate after they made it. And I said, those are good clients. That's what I want to do. What year was this, Bob? Do you know? That was I well, I graduated in 1980. And, and so that would have been 81, 82 or so. Market was just coming to life. Well,
1: more just, just, I mean, it's really exploding
2: in the eighties. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, so that, that's what I wanted to do, but you know, there were no opportunities right then and I couldn't jeopardize my existing job. My, Mm -hmm. my son needed to be fed. So, I, I stayed at that for about four years.
1: Before we move on to the next thing, talk a little bit about law school and what uh what did that help you learn while you were there? I mean, did it you know, I've always heard the the phrase, uh you gotta learn how to think like a lawyer. Talk a little
2: bit about what
1: that means to you at least.
2: That that is a phrase, and uh, I'll jump into the bottom line. I, I would recommend law school to anyone who has the time and the finances to do it, even if you don't want to be a lawyer. At GW, the, the, the I remember one year, I don't remember which of the years it was, they took a survey and of my class, half the people said they did not have any intention of practicing law. Interesting. Which boggled my mind, you know, to, to to think people are investing that kind of time and money, in, mm-hmm. but they're not going to practice law. Of course, in Washington, a lot of them go into politics and that sort of thing. Of course, uh, and but but as well, a lot of them become you know uh, management companies. The firm JBG was founded attorneys. by lawyers. Yeah. yeah. So you
1: know, a lot of business people that are t- trained by law in, in yeah. law. It, it,
2: exactly. So. As you may know, the, the law school teaching, at least back in the Stone Age when I went to law school, was largely the Socratic method. Socrates, sure. okay? Yes, Socrates right. taught by asking questions. Mm-hmm. And you one question was answered that would invite a follow-up question to dig more deeply into what the, the topic was, to challenge the conclusions the person makes in the first question to the, the answer to the first question and to, to mold it into a truly defensible position and that you know i knew who socrates was i'd never heard of the socrates method of learning but sure. it was it was very inspirational to me and it it became you know i guess it was always in me even when i was drinking beer in the on route one, you know, but it—it uh, it, it was me. I found curiosity is another part of it. Oh, a- absolutely, a- absolutely. It, you know, y- your mind is working all the time. Um, of course, y- y- the y- just it—it y- y- teaches you number one how to research something, and right. that was all, of course, before you could just Google something. You had to go into a library and really do old-fashioned mm-hmm. research. It it, it 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 taught you the importance of precedent again back to English common law what right. a court decides one year is the law that applies to things following that it taught you how to think very critically you know challenge your own self challenge others it 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 it, it taught you how to find a way to prove something you, you may believe X or Y or Z but just believing it isn't going to get anybody anywhere you need to prove why x y or z are appropriate and be willing to fight for it so all of those were it turned out to be innate talents that i didn't know i had but emerged through law school that's great that's awesome one 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 little side story of that I, i i love to tell this story because one of my professors in law school was a professor named john banzaff Who, like many law professors, was really full of himself. Uh, (laughs) But some years before I had been in law school, he had organized a group of law students to challenge a new environmental law. And they filed suit. It ultimately went up to the US Supreme Court and got decided. Okay. Really? Yes. And he, uh, SCRAP, S C R A P, I forget what the initials stand for, but in any respect, He was immensely proud of it. And, you know, midway through the semester, he announces, okay, next session, we're going to discuss the scrap lawsuit that some students and I handled a a few years ago. And so I said, okay, you may or may not know this. Of course, all law cases are, or all appellate cases basically, are reported and published in law books that live Mm -hmm. forever. Sure. Supreme court cases are published in a couple of different editions. At least they were then. I think they still are. One was the Supreme court lawyer's edition. And in the lawyer's edition reports, not only was the case reported, but they would have a a summary of the briefs that all the parties submitted and they published them. So he said, we're going to discuss the scrap suit next session. I said, That's cool. So I went to the library. I pulled out the Supreme Court Lawyer's Edition. I looked at his brief and I read it. And the next next day, the next class, we go into class. Okay. So he says, so, you know, on what grounds did this case win or how did we win this case? And somebody blah, 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 which was right in what we had to read in class. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, now here's the question. What other arguments? Might you advance? And I, mm-hmm. I raised my hand. I said, "Well, I would argue A and B and C, which I've gotten from reading." his, his brief. brief. Yeah. That you are exactly right. That <laughs> and I and was like the hero of the class, and, and all. It, all it was was that I figured out how to get the answer and and ahead of time, and and I felt damn good about that. Uh, and you know, whatever. I, I never told him that I read that, but. So I, I left him thinking that I was nearly as brilliant as he is.
1: If he were smart enough, he would have said, I know where you got.
2: exactly. And he may have, but he wasn't willing to reveal it to right. my colleagues.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. So you were four years with the trucking law firm and then decided, mm, this is not for me. So what? what kind of... Direct redirected you 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 looked at Regardis and you said i like real estate so what where did you go from there with that thought process
2: yeah okay so you are aware that i was at wilkes artists for a a number of years and we'll maybe get into that a little bit more detail but that that firm was founded i think in 1926 and if you know anything about zoning law you'll know that it was in the 1920s I don't remember the exact date, that the city of Euclid case was decided. This was Euclid, Ohio. And they had passed a zoning ordinance and property owners opposed it because they said it was taking away property rights. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the city of Euclid's zoning case was not a deprivation of property without compensation, that it was a justifiable power for the local government. Well, immediately after that, because cities were growing and they were putting factories next to homes and all, all kinds of other things, cities throughout the country immediately adopted zoning ordinances. So well, that was the first zoning ordinance in the country Yes Ohio Well the, the, really? no, the, no there were some before that but that was one that was challenged and so uh, it, it uh-huh. verified the okay. legitimacy of a zoning ordinance. interesting okay uh, I think Montgomery <laughs> County's zoning ordinance, by the way, was adopted in 1928, the first one. But in, in any respect, so the at that time, the, the D.C. has something they call the Corporation Counsel's Office. It's like the county attorney's office or whatever. There was a, a, a young attorney there named Jim Wilkes who helped to write the zoning ordinance for the D.C. government. And, and his wheels were even better turning than mine. Having written the zoning ordinance... He, as folklore has it, he decided, wait a minute, there might be some money to be made in this. And so he and another person from the Corporation Counsel's Office, actually two others, started their own law firm, Wilkes McGaragy and Artis, and began doing zoning law. Now, back then, lawyers did everything. And so you know, there, then there wasn't enough zoning law to go around, but they they, they were pioneers in zoning law. Then, when world war ii wound down as you know washington dc caught fire it was you know there were so many government jobs here that had grown out of the war etc the dc region was growing by leaps and bounds um, well the new deal just you know exploded washington uh, not uh, just uh, the
1: war yeah. it was incredible
2: A- absolutely it was incredible. night and day in terms of real estate development yeah. and right. so their work started to grow they hired a, a a man who had just gotten out of the army uh, named Norman Glasgow to yes. to to you know build their zoning practice and so from his first day on there he specialized in zoning and land use he did it in D.C. primarily because that's where most of the work was but because he lived in Maryland he was doing work in Maryland as well he he got Geico. Their first approval in 1955 for their building in Friendship Heights. He Still got the approval, there, yeah, yeah, for Saks Fifth Avenue, for you know a lot of this stuff, Montgomery Village, etc. Mm-hmm. So he had become a force. Well, I mentioned earlier that I got married after my first year of law school. What I didn't mention is that her name was Heather Glasgow. Oh, okay, <laughs> and, and, and so. At about the time that you know I was really getting turned on by Bill Rigardi's real estate article, and I knew I had a connection with a firm that did zoning and land use. I approached him about getting a job. Well, they had had some attorneys who joined the firm earlier who did not. It didn't really pan out. Nepotism hires, mm-hmm. okay, sons of partners, and sure. so they they were apprehensive about any any relationship coming in. and he was hesitant too. he didn't want to, you know, burn his own bridge. but eventually, my wife's mother convinced him that I was the man. and the, coincidentally works artists had had a series of efforts to open an office in Montgomery County, which never panned out. The person they would hire to open the office would be there a year or two and then would move on and and not do something. so, Norman Glasgow came to me and said, look, here's the deal. I know you. My wife has vouched for you. You're a hard worker. We want to open a new office for Works Artists in Bethesda. But we don't want somebody who's going to be here one year and go on the next. So you got to commit to me that you're the man. I said, you got it. And so they they hired me. Uh, I had to take a cut in pay to wow. do the job because I didn't know anything about zoning and land use. They said, we'll teach you. We know everything about it. So I started a new office for Wokes of Artists in Bethesda in 1986. I was the only attorney there. I, fortunately, through the firm's good graces, their presence, et cetera, I was able to grow that from to 15 attorneys by 2001. Uh, most of us did land use work. there were some of us doing transactional work. some of us you may know Eric Kassoff, doing real estate tax appeal work and it was we were rocking and rolling it was it was just a, a great experience.
1: That's great. And so you were there for how
2: long? It Until 2001, the some of the uh, by that point in time, national firms were building platforms in DC. Holland and Knight being one of them. Holland and Knight had gobbled up a number of other real estate transactions practices in the area. Other big firms, national platforms, were coming in. Till that point in time, land use had always been strictly local. Not that it isn't still, but the uh, they were starting to attract people. Well, they hired away from Wilkes artists, the then head of the land use group, Wayne Quinn, and and then a couple of other people left to go to one some to Holland and Knight, some to other big firms, and so the, the the land use group, not unanimously, but generally concluded. Hey, wait a minute! Local land use practice may not be where it is. We may we need to be on a big platform, and so everybody except for the real estate tax people that were part of Wilkes Artists agreed to join Holland and Knight, and uh, I was among them, along with the, the the other attorneys whom I'd hired in Bethesda, and mm-hmm. so so we jumped ship to to Holland and Knight.
1: So let me back up before we go further on that that transition to the choice between land use and transactional law and kind of I guess it was more of a guide because of the Norman Glasgow in, influence to go into land use or was that before that that you got into the land use side of the of the, of the legal profession?
2: It, it was really part of that you know a function of his inspiration and the opportunity and in part. Bill Rigardi's inspiration, but I I quickly found out that, and I learned this better in retrospect than I did understand it prospectively, but it turned out that zoning law was the perfect for me, I I think. I'm not sure I would have made it as a litigator, you know, I, 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 while I can deal with adversity, I don't want to be arguing with somebody every day of the week or, or whatever. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I don't think I could have been a transactional attorney because looking at documents all day doesn't float my boat the way looking at architecture does. Or drafting. Or yeah, yeah. E- exactly. So, w- what I found about zoning law, and this is why I would advocate the practice to anybody with any. Of the ingredients that I think I have is there are multiple factors. One, you're, you're you're part of history, okay? You're you're creating the future that your children and maybe your grandchildren and maybe somebody a hundred years later will see. You know, I I I look out my window and I see the Chevy Chase Bank headquarters building at the corner of New Hampshire. I, I, uh, Wisconsin Avenue and East West Highway. I remember when the Hot Shelf was there, and I remember when the owners of the Hot Shelf property came to me and said, "Hey, we want to do something more." And mm-hmm. I'm working with them and and some creative developers. We were able to get that bank building approved there. I, I look at the community of Falls Grove in in, in Rockville. I look at mm-hmm. you know Bethesda Row in you know Bethesda. All of these things are projects where I had uh, uh, a hand i it was not my idea in any respect Uh, i was not even the principal brains behind any of them but i was the vehicle that enabled each of them to happen and i can i I can drive by them today and i take pride in in seeing what i did that you know I, i wouldn't have gotten that out of a transactions practice and i definitely wouldn't have gotten it out of a litigation practice the, the the other parts of working in this field are that the clients that I represent these folks are entrepreneurs of first order. I'm not a risk taker, other than riding motorcycles and skydiving and skiing. Still at my advantage. Those are age. significant yeah. risks. Yeah, they're, they're just <laughs> not financial <laughs> risks, <laughs> right? I, I from the time I was twelve, I worked too hard for my dollars to to, to gamble uh-huh. them. Okay. But yeah. the clients I have, these folks are riverboat gamblers of first order. Okay, they know what they're doing, but they're risking great money, and they're doing it on, you know, in part on my analysis. I, I still remember a client came to me. Well, I think I can tell this: the, the Falls Grove project I mentioned, EYA, Pulte, JPI, and Learner. Yep. The, 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 the the Thomas Farm was on the market Riggs Bank was trying to sell it I think it was 150 acres or whatever but it was being being sold out of an estate and as you may know, most estates they don't want contingent contracts you, you buy it you got it and so they had this property on the market you know as is whereas these folks decided they liked it. we spent a while analyzing it and they asked me, okay, the master plan and zoning call for X. I think it was like 700 homes and a bunch of office space. And they said, we don't want to do that. We want 1,500 homes and we want way less office space because that's what we think the market is. Do you think we can get there? And so we spent a lot of time analyzing. I spent a lot of time analyzing. They said, okay, Bob, what's your advice? I said, I think we can get there. They spent forty-two million dollars to buy that property because I told them I thought they could get fifteen hundred homes there through the zoning process. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they didn't sleep that night, but I know I didn't, and I know it didn't. <laughs> I know there were many nights after that that I woke up and said, "Holy cow, you better deliver on this!" And lo and behold, d- we did.
1: Just for the listeners' benefit. Art Fusillo, who's the principal for Learner, that handled that transaction, talked about it in his episode as well, the podcast, the all yep. Grove transaction. He,
2: that was the first time I'd worked with Art, and it was a great experience, but <clears throat> I was able to work with Bob Young and Tob, uh, again, another one of your interviewees. Bob
1: also talked about it as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, and Bob and I had worked on other projects before that, but but we worked on, on that together. And, it, and the other people, it was... It, uh, it was one of the greatest uh, experiences of my life yeah it just, uh, loved it's just I love it it's unique you know? to get
1: developers of that caliber all together to come to make a deal
2: like that yeah it, exactly That's developers are major, major players yeah. yeah developers are normally independent thinkers right and and, right. and they want the whole enchilada they don't want half the enchilada mm-hmm. but because this was you know you know contemplated and best suited for a mix of uses. eya didn't do multifamily. Learner did a variety of things, but they didn't do single family really. So so they wound up with the retail and the office. JPI wound up with the multifamily. Pulte wound up with the single families and, and EYA did the towns.
1: Yep. And it worked out great. Project sold out quickly. I actually financed two of the two of the townhouse sold these myself with oh, uh, cool.
2: Great guy named Greg Cox, who was the overall oh, manager of the community. Sure, I know Greg. Yeah, it was a pleasure working with him on that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that was fun. So yeah, I would. I, I I'm a an absolute spokesperson for land use work in the legal profession. I, <laughs> I I love it.
1: So each lawyer at a law firm has a set group of clients. Talk about why lawyers form a firm. With multiple disciplines, is it one-stop shopping, or is it for collaborative situations to help clients?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and your your, your question in, implies the answer, which is a, a part of the answer. You're right. Clearly, a law firm benefits from collective knowledge and collaboration. We at Lurch Early now have 12 land use attorneys. Those attorneys do 100% land use work. Okay, but each of us has different thought processes each of us has different experiences each of us has different clients and so we regularly will we will ask each other hey anybody have an idea about this here's my issue i want to get a conditional use approval but i need a site plan do you have any idea uh, any experiences where that's been done in this sequence and so collectively we come up with you know a well informed You know, assessment of how to do things and it it works extremely well. There's also the benefit of the recognition factor. Okay. When you have 12 attorneys doing something, the name Lurch Early gets out there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And even if my name might not be associated with it, Lurch Early is. So, Clients will sometimes look up who's the biggest law firm, biggest land use practice in the area, or, or they'll they'll go on Google and they'll look up and they'll say, oh, look at this, these folks have 12 attorneys. So even if they don't know me, they may contact us. But just as likely, they'll look in there and they'll see something about me and, and put two and two together. And so I, I benefit from that, as, as do the other people. On the other side of the equation, the regulators, the decision makers, take notice as well. They know that we know what we're doing. We're we we we're not making stuff up. We're, we're basing our advice and positions on precedent. And so I think we get a little bit better recognition by the regulators and the staff people than if we were just a sole practitioner out there. So, so all that works as well. And then as you said, the one-stop shop kind of thing. We, we've got other practices here: transactions, real estate finance, condominium and HOA law, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly beneficial to a lawyer to be able to bring in client X and do land use work and say, "Hey, Mister X, you know, you, you're going to need to set up a condo association for this. I got a partner who can do that for you," and mm-hmm. you know, it works to everybody's advantage. So. So, so, so that works. But at the, uh, at the same time, we feel it's our obligation to serve the industry. Because of our size, we have somebody covering virtually every legislative change versus every po- virtually every policy document that is being discussed, virtually every issue that's being debated. And so we represent the industry if you will in carrying forward ideas and opposing ideas and supporting good ideas in in those respects you know and i've got several that are going on right now like that so it it, it we we take because we're a big firm but we give because we're a big firm as well do you
1: often advocate and support legislation you know from the get-go
2: a- a- absolutely yeah uh, you know you know in fact that that's one of the one of the lessons i've learned in in land use law that i didn't really learn in law school and that is that how there's more than one way to skin a cat there's more than one way to get to success okay sometimes it's by coloring inside the lines law says a b c d and e if you can do a b c and d and e then then your 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 path is paved but if you want to do A, B, C, D, and F, that's a little something different. And so sometimes you can convince the decision makers that an F looks like an E, and, and therefore you can do it. Other times, you may need to say, look, the law is wrong. It should say A, B, C, D, and E, or F, and you get the law changed. Right. And so, yes, we do that frequently. Mm-hmm.
1: So. And you make a case based on how the, the situation has changed, such that you need to adapt to how the situation fits into the situ- into the current
2: market. Let's it's say exactly right. Markets are not static. The climate is not static. Transportation mm-hmm. is not static. Needs are not static, uh, and and so the law can't be static. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Let's
2: now go back to your transition
1: career-wise. You talked about going in from Wilkes Artists in into uh, Holland and Knight, <clears throat> and you were there for quite a long time, also. So, talk about you know what happened with Holland and Knight, and what transitioned there, and what how that evolved.
2: Sure. The yeah, we were there. I was there from 2001 to 2011, ten years exactly yep Mm -hmm. the 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 Holland and i platform has proven to be very good for the zoning attorneys who practiced in dc Mm dc is a a big market all the projects pretty much are big projects a lot of times they're done by uh, companies outside of the area and the having the uh, the presence in you know dallas in new york or whatever brings them clients from those places that Mm -hmm. that do that the my assessment however uh, over time became that the that was not so much true in montgomery county okay Our, our our projects are smaller by nature not always they are more often local developers than out of towners, and the eventually those of us who were practicing, the way I put it to other people at one time was, which of these is not like the other? New York City, London, Beijing, and Bethesda. Well, <laughs> well, Hanna and I had had offices in New York City, London, Beijing, and a bunch of right. other cities. Right. Sure. And we had this little outpost in Bethesda, uh-huh. and it, it just was not like the rest. Right. And and you know it it was just the 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 bureaucracy was not did not support our practice. We had constraints about you know what fees we we could charge, what size cases to take, et cetera. It just it, it, it it's a great firm, and and they have a great presence in D.C. I still know a number of the attorneys there that I like, but it just wasn't appropriate for. Bethesda. And if you look around, you see that the the, the land use attorneys practicing in the suburbs, by and large, are smaller local firms. And very focused on their specific jurisdictions. Exactly right. It's a highly specialized uh, practice. And, you know, it it, it just calls for locality. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you...
1: You talked about Lurcherly and why you've joined them and how they've grown. One of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I'll maybe relate to it personally, because I when I moved here in 1985 to my neighborhood, I live in Chimichase Chase View, Maryland, which is <clears throat> just north of the Beltway. Uh my next door neighbor at the time I moved in was a fellow by the name of Bob Metz. And Bob uh was a senior partner at Linnos and Blocker, which at the time when I came here uh, was known supposedly as the leading land use attorney, land use firm in the county at that time because of Joe Blocker and Bob Linnos being pioneers in the, in the land use space, at least in the county at the time. Although you cited in an email earlier to me that He wasn't that they weren't necessarily the first. So maybe you can, you know, elaborate on that a little
2: bit. Right, right. So Linners and Blocker, sadly, no longer in existence, definitely was a land use leader in Montgomery County. Bob Linners and Joe Blocker, you know, I think both came out of the county attorney's office. I'm thinking they might have formed the firm in the early 60s or something like that. I don't really recall, but they built a very significant real estate practice platform in montgomery county but they were not the first as i mentioned earlier wilkes artists to my knowledge was the first zoning specialized firm st- starting 50 years earlier or maybe okay. 60 years earlier almost and and they did work in montgomery county but you know not to the same level as linos and blocker linos really set the bar they, they they hired great people you mentioned bob metz Bob Dalrymple, John Delaney, you know, the, 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 I really knew them much better than I knew Bob Leno's or Joe mm-hmm. Locker, but they were all, you know, the, the senior statesmen in the land use bar in Montgomery County. And, and you know, uh, I, I, I learned a lot by watching them. But the over the years, people there, lawyers change firms with, some degree of regularity. Not not every firm is built for everybody. Over the years, I actually hired six or seven different <coughs> people from Liners and Blocker who came to me. I wasn't outgrading anybody, but they came to me and wanted a, a different environment. And uh, they stayed with me, every one of them, until they retired. So it, it, it was good, but I, I great respect for, uh, for Liners and Blocker. At the same time, at least at one time, they had great respect for me. My little side story here, my my brother-in-law, many years ago, this would have been probably in the mid-1980s, was at lunch in Silver Spring, a, a restaurant, kind of a hole in the wall called The Quarry House on George Avenue. And mm-hmm. Leonard's and Blocker's office, of course, were in Silver Spring at the time. Right. And my brother-in-law was there for lunch one day, and he's just having his lunch, and he hears this group of guys at a table next to him talking. and one of them mentions the name Bob Harris. So his ears perk up completely. He quit eating his burger or whatever it was and totally eavesdropped on the conversation. Huh. And the the conversation basically was, you know, this guy, Bob Harris, he's really starting to eat into our business. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a force to be reckoned with here. My brother-in-law reports that to me that evening. And I said, wow. Oh, that... <laughs> That is so cool! <laughs> oh man, I'm a hero. <laughs> well, that's funny, Bob. It, it it was great. And years later, um, one of the attorneys at, at Leno's did come to me, and he said he wanted to talk with me about maybe joining their firm. I was still at I think I was still at Works Artists then. Maybe I was at oh, no, I, I think it was Works Artists. So I agreed to to meet with him just to hear what mm-hmm. he had to say, but. I don't know if you know the, the the hole in the wall called Hank Deedles. on Rockville Oh, Hill sure. Pike. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yes. well, it's a little less of a hole in the wall now that they've rebuilt it, and it's a yeah. It Had a fire. Yeah, yeah. right. It, but it was a total hole in the wall then. A oh, pool, yeah. I've pool table there. and beer and oh, yeah. I remember all, all that. So I said, okay, I'll agree to meet with you, but I didn't want to meet with him anywhere where I might be seen by somebody in that that might report on me. So I said, let's meet at Hank Deedles. <laughs> so did you show <laughs> up on your
1: leathers and your metrical yeah, right. yeah, helmets? Exactly.
2: <laughs> so we, met, we met at Hank Deedles to talk about whether <laughs> I wanted to join their firm or not. In the end, I listened, That's but crazy. I did not have an interest in it. That's funny. And, and we both went our own ways.
1: Huh. So what do you what do you think makes a good land use attorney? What sets apart outstanding counsels from the pack?
2: Yeah, you got to live in your client's skin. I think you—you know—I said I'm not a entrepreneur. I'm not a risk taker. I'm not—you know—going to gamble my money. But my clients are. But I, I think the land use attorney has to feel the same way as as the the person who's putting the money out there. You need to really step into their shoes you need to be thinking about their issues all the time i mean there are many times to this day where i'll wake up in the middle of the night and i'll have a thought i keep a tab of paper next to my bed so i can write down my thought because too many times in the past i had a what i thought was a brilliant thought and i'd wake up in the morning i said what the hell was that brilliant thought and and, and, and it's, it's gone now i will confess although i write them down now and believe in the middle of the night that it's a brilliant thought i get up in the morning i look at it it's not so brilliant but right. but, but enough of them are good thoughts but but i am always thinking about the client and 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 how i can how, how i can win their case for them and how i can advise them uh, on what to do and and that includes counseling the client not just the client says i want to get from a to b okay, I'm your guy. Let's go get to B. Sometimes you need to say, wait a minute, B might not work. We might have to go for A prime. Okay. And, and here's why. And so sometimes I'm convincing the regulators, the staff people of what should be done. And other times, you know, when I feel justified, I'm convincing the client that they need to think a little differently. So it's it's it, again it's living in their skin. Okay, you've you've excelled
1: in your practice. Do you have a credo for your practice and your relationship with your clients?
2: Ooh, not not that I can think of really. I you know other than treating them the way I mentioned and. and and really put my heart and soul into their objective. Not so much. I, I, you know, I'll be honest. Well, well, I loved drinking beer on route one many years ago. I'm not a, I'm not a, a party guy in, in, well, I'm not a lunch guy. Let's say I don't take clients out to lunch very often. I don't, Really socialize with my clients. You Play golf much. with them? I, I, not, I, not to the country club level or anything. I play right. golf sometimes. By the way, Art Fusillo and and Bob Young and Tob took us all down to Tampa to play golf for three or four days when we succeeded on the Falls Grove case, which was a great experience. But it, you know, not so much. I I'm kind of a nose to the grindstone guy, coming from my. Blue collar, no, roots. your origins, yeah. yeah, and and so you know, I would typically get in the office by 7 or 7.30 in the morning and not leave till six at night and, and work Saturday mornings because I'm I, I wanted to put the best product out there. So, you know, I hope my clients respect that. I think the proof is in the pudding that you know, the practice I've built over the years does say that they appreciate that and they don't necessarily need to play golf with me or, or you know, have lunch with me to appreciate that. So negotiation is a key element
1: in both real estate law and business. What tactics have you learned in quality
2: negotiations?
1: How has this set you apart from others in your career?
2: Okay. I, I don't know if this sets me apart from others in my career, but I, I think I can put together an answer as far as how I approach this. As, as I was briefly mentioning a moment ago, well, l- l- let me start with this. Part of the negotiation in, in land use is negotiating with the regulators, the staff members, etc., who have the, the job of approving or denying your application frequently their thoughts are going to be somewhat different than the client's thoughts. Sometimes they're totally different than the client's thoughts. But in either respect, the negotiation has to be to massage their thinking to help them, I'll call it, improve their thinking about the project from your perspective. Why is this really going to be Better for affordable housing. Why is it going to be better to tear down an old 1930s apartment building with 100 units in it, no air conditioning, no sprinklers, but modest rents, and put up a new building of 400 units, where 15 percent of them are going to be moderately priced dwelling units, et cetera? So you you need to your word negotiation. You need to negotiate with them, and and and. And, and, you know, convince them that th- there are different perspectives than theirs. At the same mm-hmm. time, you need to negotiate with the opposition. Frequently, land use cases face opposition. And some of it is dogmatic opposition, where you really, your opposition people don't even want to listen. They, they know what they know, and they're just going to fight you. But as frequently as not in Montgomery County, where we have um, a well-educated population by and large, you you can reason with them and you can explain to them why what you want to do is better or admittedly change what you want to do to address their concerns. That happens Mm -hmm. frequently. So call that negotiation, if you will. Uh, That's fine. And then thirdly, as I mentioned, the, the third party with whom you have to negotiate sometimes is the client. The client wants to build, you know, X, and and X is just going to be too big. You need X minus one if you want to succeed, and you need to convince them. Some clients are very good about that. EYA totally gets that. They, they you know, they they figure out how to get to the finish line, even if it's not exactly in the same place as the finish line they envisioned when they started. Others are more difficult but so you know it's negotiation from a different perspective than negotiating a contract or negotiating a you know a litigation settlement but it's negotiation yes sure so what do you see as the biggest challenges today
1: in real estate law in general
2: (sighs) yeah well I I long for the 1928 Montgomery County zoning ordinance. <laughs> that zoning ordinance was about 10 pages long. I have it over here on my shelf. Uh, I, I could give you the exact pages, but it's about 10 pages long. The current zoning ordinance is about 300 pages long. Okay. And that's just the zoning ordinance. Add to that, that we've got, you know, Impact taxes and transfer taxes, energy taxes. We've got now. You know, we have to address forest and stormwater management. We have to address pedestrian and bicycle. We we, we development in Montgomery County now has to ensure a stress-free pedestrian and bicycle environment <laughs> around it. Well, you know, so and some of these requirements are highly subjective in nature. Other of them are. Imposed with some rigidity, they and and don't even get me started on rent control. The the costs and burdens of our progressive government in Montgomery County, while well intentioned, are you know causing adverse implications in development. You know, some might like to blame the developers and the builders for the high cost of housing. I don't think that's the case. I don't think their profit margins are any bigger now than they were in 1950. Okay. The base on which they're building their profit margin is hugely different. And, you know, when, when my house was built, the county paid for road improvements in the area. You know, that hasn't been the case for 30 years now since we passed our, you know, local area transportation review guidelines and our annual growth policy. So all of that is now on the shoulders of the development community along with numerous other things. Um you didn't talk about the master plan project process either which is yeah, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, let's uh, yeah, let, let's talk about that because in Montgomery County here, um we have a very sophisticated and I'll say a good Land use approval process with a number of qualifications or footnotes, okay? You know, we developed a countywide master plan in 1962 the wedges and corridors plan that laid out basically how the county was going to be developed. It was done throughout the region, but Montgomery County is the only jurisdiction that followed it with any degree of rigidity and still does today.
1: Wasn't that the
2: year the Capitol Beltway opened, basically, nineteen sixty-two? It was it opened about that age in Virginia. I still remember riding my mini bike when I was a kid on the Maryland sure. portion. That would have been about nineteen sixty-five that it opened mm-hmm. in Maryland, but about uh-huh. the same time. The that plan gave way to a whole series of comprehensive plans that we have throughout the county that we update basically once every 20 years that, you know started out as 15 page documents and now are 200 page documents uh again they've they've grown to be more burdens than inspirations yes <laughs> yes we need <laughs> oh that's interesting we, we we need to paint a picture so that everybody doesn't just go off on their own And 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 the government needs to be able to plan for public facilities, et cetera, that relate to what's happening. But when we get carried away to the point where we're saying that you have to have a front porch on a house, or that the you can't have a garage door facing the street, the garage should be in the back of the house. I have great problems with that because architecture. Yeah, it's architecture. And and what, what you like in architecture, I may not like. I mean, I, I live in mm-hmm. Potomac. I drive up River Road. And some of these new mansions that they're building, they're gaudy to me. You know, I that's mm-hmm. not my architecture. But somebody's paying 5 to $10 million to build those babies, so somebody likes them. So who is it to me to say, you can't build that kind mm-hmm. of architecture? Right. And so I have great problems with that. You know, some of the additional regulatory burdens are well-placed. Yes, we've got environmental issues that we have to deal with. When Font designed the city of D.C., he didn't care about creeks. Fill in Tiber Creek, you know, fill in the mall, whatever. You can't do that today, uh, and, and with, with good justification. But there again, some of that gets carried away. Trees regrow. We've got more trees in Montgomery County now than we did 100 years ago. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Look, look yeah. at some of the aerial photographs. Oh, it's it's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, look at the town of Chevy Chase, the village of Chevy Chase. If you have an error, you can't see a thing. That was all farm fields, you know, yeah. hundred years ago. Okay. That's interesting. Uh yeah. well, That's a little more than hundred, I guess. But anyway, mm-hmm. so so I personally believe that some of these regulations, while well intentioned, are overly restrictive and definitely overly costly to development. Mm-hmm. So,
1: you lead or have your local practice, I believe. Uh, Consequently, you might have the luxury of choosing your client base and turn down some business that you decide isn't worth the aggravation. How do you discern your clients and how do you guide your colleagues in this process?
2: That is one of the benefits of being a senior attorney rather than the the kid, you know, who's starting Mm -hmm. to learn land use practice in 1986. In 1986, I'd have represented Genghis Khan if he came in and, 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 and wanted to do something. It didn't matter. I needed the job. I needed the, the work. Um, uh-huh. Over the years, I had experiences with the Genghis Khans of the real estate world, and they weren't fun experiences. And right. So in all honesty, there are some people where I, I'm just not going to represent them okay and and we certainly won't get into names on that but of course there are others who i'd rather not represent but you know i i'm enough with them that i i'm okay with the firm doing it but i so i can delegate those cases to somebody else and and not punish myself in in that. i i but i like to evaluate every potential case you know how on several grounds first of all how realistic is their idea are they trying to build an upside down pyramid on a swamp right. well know, you know no i'm not dead forget it my time's too short we're not doing that but you know but if if their idea is realistic even if challenging okay let's go to the next step um i want to make sure that the client understands the costs and the risks you know, I, I'm a very upfront about things. I've probably chased some work away that I, I didn't have to by scaring somebody with telling them what lies ahead. But I'd rather scare them away with what lies ahead than be told two years into the project, you didn't tell us this, yeah. you know, and, and now we're mm-hmm. pregnant. So I, I like to do that as I mentioned a couple of times, I, I, I want to make sure that the client understands the importance of flexibility, that they need to be flexible as well as the government being flexible. You know, very few people get a hundred percent of what they want in life. Trump likes to believe that he does, but he's finding out now that that's not necessarily true, but the, so uh, that all goes into selecting and advising the clients. But there are clients whom I've represented. Some of the names I've mentioned already today uh, are people I love to represent because I, I don't even have to inquire as to those uh, issues that I mentioned. I already know they're there, and you know, let's go full speed ahead. If if you want to do something, I'm I'm in.
1: Have you ever represented somebody that you didn't really want to, but the issue that they brought to the table was so important? From a public policy standpoint, or you thought was really needed to be advocated, you went ahead and took the case anyway, just to push that issue forward. Just out of curiosity.
2: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I, I'm sure that's the case because, again, from the time I got bitten by the law bug in college and then in law school, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by being right, if you will. Mm-hmm. If, sure. If, if the law says I can do something, you know, then, then I want to fight to do it. Even if, even if it's, you know, going to have an adverse impact on somebody, even if it may not be a, a moneymaker or whatever, yeah, I like to prove that I'm right. And so, yeah, I'm sure there are some cases I can't think of any right now, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I th- that everybody has their own principles in that regard, but you know, I, I I would not represent somebody who wanted to do something that I thought was, you know, not obviously not illegal. I I wouldn't do that ever. But if I thought it was a bad idea, if it was going to ruin the creek or whatever, right? Okay, right. I, even if they they could get away with it, I'd rather not do that. I don't want that on my resume that that creek got polluted because of what I did. There you go. I get that. So
1: you lead or led your uh, since you are both respected as a leader in the industry, I assume you enjoy mentoring young attorneys. What advice do you
2: offer to your mentees? Yeah, that that that's comprehensive indeed. I I you know I love to give advice, whether it's taken or not, is, is another thing. I, I gave a lot of advice to my children. They took some, ignored some. <laughs> I, 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 I now give even more advice to my grandchildren. They take some and ignore some. And uh-huh. and the attorneys that I work with, you know, take some of my advice and ignore others. We're we're all independent thinkers. I didn't take all the advice. That was given to me. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I was right not to take the advice. Other times, not so much. But I I, I love doing it. And there's such a great honor when a younger attorney comes to you and asks you what I think he should do or she should do about a situation. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like being a parent.
1: Right. Exactly. So is there some... General advice you give to oh young mentees?
2: Um, yeah, th- I'm. I'm. That's evolving. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if if I had my druthers, I'd say listen to the podcast of my John Co interview and do exactly <laughs> what I did. Okay, <laughs> but you know that's not going to fly. Frankly, I can't even get him to come into the office sometimes now, and that is as foreign to me as you know. Beijing land use work, mm-hmm. but I, again, I accept the fact that you know the way in which I practice law was not the same way that Norman Glasgow did, and he was successful in his way. I've been successful in mine, and and there are a, a lot of different ways to achieve success. So I, I try not to be too strict in in what I'm I say, rather the broad you know objectives. Mm-hmm.
1: I just, you know, somehow certain things you might say, for instance, like client advocacy or certain ways handling situations in public forums maybe or in private with you know in front of clients, that kind of thing. You know, how you you know behave
2: or sure. Yeah. Okay. I I see see where you're going now. Okay. Yeah, sure. Some land use attorneys, again, who won't be identified, or Much more aggressive, even flippant, even you know, bordering on, in my mind, disrespectful of of Mm -hmm. people. Uh, That none of those would wash with me. Uh, Now, some may disagree. They may say I'm as disrespectful as anybody, but I I try not to be. Certainly, Uh, but you have to understand that there are different views on things, and the fact that somebody has a different view doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. If it's different than mine, they're probably wrong. But other than that, you know, you know, you, you need to respect people's views. You need to be polite. You need to appreciate what they're doing. The, these staff people, for instance, are, are doing their best. They're they're trying hard. Maybe they don't work the same hours that I did or you do, but you know, understand that they're in a position of power, so you, you, you need to respect it. But they're people too. You, you need to you, you need to treat clients the same way. The think through what your position is and be prepared to defend it, but recognize that sometimes people will disagree and, and you're just going to have to deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So relationships are key to our industry. Talk about some of your client relationships, if you would, and how they impacted your career. And how have
2: you retained your relationships for so long? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd start with sort of a not not how, but why, and that is why is it important to have the relationship. Well, obviously, it's most important because the, the client who's your client today hopefully will be your client on another matter tomorrow, and and you know I, I've you know done fairly well in that regard some of the people I've represent I've represented for my entire career. The but the other flip side of that really is that, particularly in real estate, well, any profession for that matter, people are not always with the same company, okay? And many, many people that I represented when they were with client ABC and they moved to client CDE, I keep ABC as a client with their new person that took that job, and I follow the other person to client CDE I've got two clients I call it the mitosis effect there you go and, yeah. and, and 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 mitosis is 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 great so you know that that's an important part of relationships as I mentioned earlier some believe that taking clients to lunch is an important part of the relationship I just haven't found I I can understand that for some people I just haven't found that to be essential to me rather Make, letting the client know that you're thinking of them all the time, as I mentioned earlier, is more important. I love to send clients a note. Hey, I saw this article about something or other. I was thinking of you. Remember the time we we did what or whatever, and and that sort of thing. So that not only are they on my mind when I'm when I'm working for them, they're on my mind when I'm not working for them. And the, the, the relationships with clients is also important to have the relationships with the. The decision makers, the regulators, et cetera, in Montgomery County, that does not mean you need to make big financial contributions to mm-hmm. to candidates. You know, for whatever faults we may have in Montgomery County, my perception uh, is we are squeaky clean ethically in that regard. There, you know, these improprieties you read about really don't exist here with a, a couple of minor, minor exceptions. And that's not true in zoning land use around the country necessarily. But you, know, you, you need to build these relationships with the, the people from the top part of government all the way down to the intake review person. And so that's important. That's great. So about Disclosing any
1: secrets, you've already told some of them. are so some stories of your favorite and not-so-favorite experiences and any lessons you learned from them, Bob.
2: Uh, lots of lessons, lots of lessons. And, and I chuckle about them. A couple that, so early in my career, uh, I took over the representation of GEICO from um, my senior partner. They had parking lot lights that were put in there in the 1950s. Little Six foot tall, five foot tall, mushroom shaped lights at a time when they didn't work past dark there, and those lights were inadequate with current safety issues, and so they, you know, they wanted to upgrade them to to better lighting. We we, we applied for we we sorry this um we we got a new phone system here. And I can't figure out how to work some of the things. Anyway, so they wanted to put in new lights. So I I represented them. It was a a special exception use. I hired a lighting expert to come in. The the neighbors were all up in arms. It was going to blind them at night. They weren't going to be able to sleep. The dog was going to bark all night, blah, blah, blah. So we go to the hearing. I get this lighting expert. He brings in a light meter. And we're in the hearing room and they're saying it's going to be so bright i said all due respect let me show you that it's not going to be so bright so i said can we turn off all the lights in here okay can we uh-huh. clo- can we close the blinds okay so we close the blinds in the room so i get the lighting expert to take his light meter up i say put it here under this underneath the dais where my feet are and tell me what the light level is under there oh it's 1.0 or whatever the, the scale mm-hmm. was I right. said okay. And what level of is lighting going to be that we're proposing? Oh, it's going to be point eight. I said it's not. That's how light it is. This is not going to be keeping a flea up at night. <laughs> and, and I lost the case. Oh my gosh! The, the The board. First of all, the board. It was a five member board, and you needed three of you needed right. four of the five to vote oh, for really? the super majority. But secondly. Oh. What I learned from that is I was 100% right. They were 100% wrong, but that doesn't matter. It's about the impression. It's about what people are afraid of or whatever. And you need to dispel the rumors, not just correct the facts. The I don't like to talk about losses, but the second lesson I learned was similar to that. As you may recall, Jim Clark of Clark Construction he used to live on the Eastern Shore over in Easton. Mm-hmm. Fly his and, helicopter and he, and he owned a helicopter. He'd fly it in. Right. It, would, it would land mm-hmm. down at the Stewart Petroleum Building on Wisconsin Avenue, just inside D.C. But well, yes. when he built when he built the Clark Building, he built it with a helipad. On That's truck. right. Mm-hmm. Bob Metz, your former neighbor, handled the project for them, and they attempted to get approval for a helipad at the time they built the building. Mm-hmm. The county denied it. So some years later, uh, Jim Clark comes to me, says, you're the new sheriff in town. Can you get this? I said, well, we'll give it a college try. So I I started on it. He had his son-in-law, Jim Clark's son-in-law, be the point person on it. So I said, okay, his name was Steve. I said, Steve, here's the deal. I read in the newspaper or somewhere recently that the really wealthy people who go to the Inn at Little Washington, the best restaurant in the whole region? Fly in by their helicopter. Here's the deal: if I can win this for your father-in-law, can you get him to lend us the helicopter to fly down to Inn at Little Washington to celebrate? Whoa! He, there you he, go. He comes back to me, and says, "You're on. We got this." I said, "Oh, sweet!" I was all engaged. We filed the application. Lo and behold, one of the neighbors over in where another council member lived at the time mm-hmm. approached the council member said, "Look, this is going to be terrible. I, I, I proved that that same helicopter is flying down Wisconsin Avenue every day because it's landing two miles to the south. So landing on the Clark Building is not going to change anything. In fact, it's going to dissipate the noise to anything farther south." Well, the community wasn't having it. This council member introduced a change in the zoning law midstream that prohibited a stop from being approved in that zone dead in the water what i learned from that is that laws can be changed they can be changed for the bad and you can be dead in the water even if you're right but i also learned you can change the laws for your benefit too if you run into a problem and what you want to do doesn't fit damn it get the law changed so it does fit what's interesting bob is
1: NIH is, what, three-quarters of a mile from that location? Yeah, roughly, yeah. And they have a helipad there. Yeah, the Naval <laughs> <laughs> because Hospital. Because the President yeah. of the United States flies in there on a helicopter.
2: Yeah, so. it exa- it, exactly. It was all about image, and unfortunately, right. a well-heeled neighbor with a connection to the council m- made the difference. And mm-hmm. so... I've never been to the inn at Little Washington, and I've certainly never flown in there by helicopter. So I'm still waiting for a helicopter ride. Then I'll go.
1: <clears throat> well, I think you should go on on by car, <laughs> take your wife <laughs> when you want, because yeah. it, is, it is a great experience.
2: I, I, am, I, am, told yeah. I am told that. I'm told that. it It's great. So, you know, yeah. oh, another ex- experience, Bethesda Row. I mentioned Federal Realty, a great project. Sure. Of course. What what vision they had at the time they proposed that, which was about 1994 or something. Rather. I started working with them on it, retail was all about malls, okay. Of course. And you know, nobody was doing street front retail. But so, Steve Gut Steve Gutman with yeah. with Federal had traveled enough, and he saw small towns, Europe, and America, and said, you know, street front retail is cool. People like it. And so he wanted to do a street front retail project there. And so we they they hired me to do it. Part of the project was to be the multifamily development that's on Arlington Road. At that time, the zoning ordinance allowed only a, a certain amount of height there, not what they wanted to do. So we were having a community outreach meeting to try to convince people that this was a good idea. It was in one of the storefronts there on Bethesda Row. Ben Jacobs, oh, I'm sorry, not Ben. There there was a real estate developer, not Ben Jacobs, who was in the meeting. He lived in Edgemore, and he was complaining up and down about it. He looks out the window, and he sees Ben Jacobs walking by on Bethesda Avenue outside Mm -hmm. the window, and he says, there's th- that guy there that's ben jacobs he knows about real estate development let me invite him in he'll tell you that this is not a good idea this is a terrible idea i said okay fine invite him in he didn't know that i represent ben jacobs on all the <laughs> things <I'm gonna laughs> so he yeah. brings ben jacobs in ben comes in funny. he says this guy says isn't this a stupid idea blah 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 ben says no, actually, I think it's a great idea. That's exactly what I would do there. There you <laughs> go. And That's it was so great. great. But we had to change the law. This is a case where the the Hillipad principle worked to my advantage. We changed the law to say, you can go higher here because it's street front retail. Well,
1: it's interesting. I interviewed for the podcast David Kitchens.
2: Oh, yes. Of Cooper Carey. Yeah, he was
1: involved in the project. He Absolutely. was the architect for that yeah. project. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about that project. And other ones that he'd done, because he was involved in new urbanism, which was really the theme of that architecture.
2: Yeah. That. We, we hired them because they had done a, a shopping center down in Florida. My, yeah. I forget the name of it. I mean, now. it was Boca. It was Boca. A, it was Boca. Exactly. It Boca, was Boca. Yeah. Boca. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, that was his expertise. So yeah. and he, of course, has helped Federal with other projects as well. And anyway, I thought I'd just bring that up. So that's an interesting case.
2: It was, it was a great case, and uh, I did a ULI presentation on it. Yep. Uh, you know, I wrote articles on it. It was, and, and there again, it wasn't my idea. It was Steve Gutman's idea. Okay, mm-hmm. a brilliant idea. I was just, you know, I, I drove the wagon. He he was the one with the idea.
1: Well, I interviewed Don Wood, a federal, and. Uh-huh. In fact, yesterday, I just interviewed Jeff Burkus, so oh, his episode yeah. is going to come out ahead of yours. But uh, we talked a little bit about Mr. Gutman's philosophy and what he's thinking was, and uh, the big culmination was Santana Row, which they built out in California, of course, which unfortunately had some issues.
2: That had issues beginning with burning down. Well, that's it was under right. construction. Then, yeah.
1: Yeah, and Steve stepped down because the, the way the company evolved. But it was a great theme, and of course, Pike and Rose is a perfect example of what you know that kind of thinking can evol- evolve to. It's a very special project, of course.
2: Yes, absolutely, and and it set the stage for a lot of copycats, uh, and I say that in a positive way.
1: Absolutely. So, without this, you know, with you you've been very active in the community including board memberships real estate organizations leadership volunteer activities do you you participated in, in this to keep yourself visible for legal work or do you find personal satisfaction contributing or both
2: yeah all, all of the above I, I learned from senior attorneys that i worked under the importance of your alive number one but all organizations I, and i have participated actively. When I, when I first started practicing in the Bethesda office for wilkes artists, I said, well, okay, got to join the Bethesda Chevy Chase Chamber of Commerce. And so being naive, I looked at their calendar and I saw you know, when their board of directors meeting was. And so I show up at the BCC chamber for the board of directors meeting and one of the senior people says, who are you? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to join the chamber. I want to hear about this. Well, you're not welcome at the board of directors meeting. I got thrown out. But I later became vice president of the chamber and then ultimately president of the Montgomery County Chamber. So it was just a a hiccup in terms of etiquette, but uh, it it showed my interest. But organizations have been key to learning what's going on, to building relationships, as you you say, but also... To inspiring and teaching others what you're doing with your podcast right now. The I've, I've had great opportunities to, to provide lectures to the Maryland Building Industry Association assemblages. I've spoken at ULI meetings, including the national meeting in New York where I, 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 I gave a speech about smart growth when Governor Glenn Denning was proposing it here in Maryland, and it was a new phenomenon. And I've had other opportunities like that. As I mentioned earlier, both my colleagues and I here participate in rulemaking proceedings and, and policy issues on behalf of organizations all the time, because we think it's important for us to be leading you know, the industry and and shaping it as much it is as it is learning from what's going on. So yeah, that those are and, and they're great sources of new business for clients, of course. Mm-hmm.
1: So over your career, what have been the most surprising events or transactions you've been participated in and how did they play out? What kind yes. of came out of left field that kind of hit you like, I didn't think that would happen. I'm shocked either good or bad either way
2: yeah I that one I gotta go scratch my head a little bit about it. I, I I certainly do not have 2020 foresight so I've been surprised by a number of things I'm going to defer on that question I can't think okay. of any, anything right now All right do you
1: advocate for an ESG sensitivity on your clients projects
2: you know I'm I'm learning about ESG I I'm old school and you know you, you know people got what they deserved in the old days if you will or at least that was the theory you know if you worked hard you succeeded if you didn't work hard you didn't succeed and i'm finding in life that that belief is not always true not everybody has had the same opportunities that i did was i was i handed opportunities no i largely Built them on my own, but through inspiration. But you know, others might not have even been able to achieve that, and it's gotten more difficult uh, with time. I, I paid for my college myself. Nobody could pay for their college today, and so you know, you, you have to be more inclusive than you ever did. I've probably hired as many women attorneys as I have men attorneys, which mm-hmm. was sort of the first benchmark. Minorities that's that's an additional challenge because the the uh, there are not as many candidates as I would like mm-hmm. to see so we as a firm definitely try to reach out to that but it's it's an unattained objective at this point in time um,
1: about environmental matters
2: environmental matters yeah i'm i'm learning about that as well my partner pat harris pointed out to me yesterday that that if vegetarian if, if we eliminated eating meat in the world, we would cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent or something or other. Well, uh, okay I I can believe that and I'm concerned about greenhouse gas emissions but my wife is a gourmet cook and uh, I'm not going to jeopardize either my dining or my relationship with my wife by saying, okay, we're eating eggplant tonight not uh, not not that beautiful fillet. That you roasted all day. Well,
1: <laughs> I might say a controversial thing here, but uh, if you go to the history of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, vegetables were only grazed upon. Our main focus was always something that we <laughs> hunted.
2: Well, meat. We're ma- we're, we're, I, we're talking
1: back yeah. a million years right. ago when the human race basically evolved. I mean, we have a nat- it's our natural inclination to eat meat. So it's, it's really hard to overcome, <laughs> but sure. Your, <laughs> your basic native desire is, you know, so it's, you know, I don't know. That's yeah,
2: it, it is. And, and with the natural environment beyond that, you know, trees and streams, I love to fish. Okay. There you uh, go. You know, so I want the Chesapeake Bay to be as clean as possible. You know, I'll confess when I catch a rockfish there, I don't throw it back. It's on my table that night okay mm-hmm. now is sure. that being environmentally conscious not as much as somebody who throws it back maybe but you know I'm I'm not you know throwing trash I'm not polluting or anything and I definitely support efforts to clean up the water I think our storm water management regulations in the county while while you know very ex- expensive to address are all, well-intentioned and i and i support those kind of things
1: and wetlands and wetlands exactly
2: i'm I'm less an advocate as i mentioned earlier about preserving every tree i think trees Mm -hmm. regrow and um and and you you know we should be able to cut them down to do good development that's less expensive than you know preserving every tree
1: the only the one wetlands project i'll just cite that I have found to be quite you know, moving to me was a park that is in Kensington, Maryland, uh that I walk by very frequently, just north of Knowles Avenue. You may be familiar with it. It was a it was a yeah. soccer field right. at one point, And now it is at wetlands. And they really made a very special environment there. So I'll 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 compliment. Park and planning, or whoever came up with that idea, but that was an outstanding use land use. The,
2: the, these rain gardens the, on on the larger scale the, and 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 rain parks like that are good. I I, I, I they kind of lose me with these little tiny pits along the street, you know, and stuff. This but is acres. No, this that's is... what I'm saying. The, 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 that's definitely uh, a good idea. I agree. It's one of the better
1: land use things I've seen happen. <laughs> In yeah. Recent years, I have to say, um, what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back, Bob?
2: Family, work, and giving back—all priorities for sure. Uh, I've had the privilege of being married for 45 years, have two children and six grandchildren, four sisters, and, and extended families. Family is everything to me. We 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 go on group vacations once a year. You know, all 40 of us. Wow, and, and and have we own a, a mountain house in Western Maryland where we pack, you know, somewhere short of forty into a two bedroom cabin with a loft and with tents all over the yard and and do cool things together. That's great. My my grandchildren are my life now. I, it, it gives me an opportunity. I, I loved boyhood. If I didn't say that before, I absolutely mm-hmm. loved that more than law school even, and more than yeah. being a lawyer. And and now I have six grandchildren, four of whom are boys. And I'd love to be a 10 year old boy again, there knowing, I, knowing what I know now, having the money I know now I have now I can do whatever I would have done when I was 10 years old, if I could, we build cool things, et cetera. They, they're my life. Work is great. Work is an equal part of my life. I'm I'm still working. I'm 72 mm-hmm. years old now. And, and I, I like my work. I like the challenges. I like the rewards. I like the mental stimulation. I want to remain relevant in the world. And so I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I may not work the same hours as I did when I was 40, but I've got the same commitment that I did. Giving back, you mentioned that, you know, I was kind of nose to the grindstone for much of my career and admittedly didn't give back as much as I, you know, retrospectively wish I had. But when when my youngest son died 10 years ago, we set up a scholarship in his name, at his high school, that has with it an internship where I take a a rising senior at his school, Gonzaga. And the the kid comes and works part of the summer with me, part of the summer with Coakley Williams Construction, and is given an insight into the world. And these are kids from underprivileged society. Uh, These are kids who couldn't go to Gonzaga without a scholarship. These are typically kids without a father that grow up in an inner city, um, environment and you know they come here and they are in awe they are inspired and it inspires me the, oh that's the f- great Bob. The, the first one of those by the way it is now a construction manager for Clark Construction oh and that's awesome it, it, and, and the others have achieved well so I'm on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters because I think they do important work so Giving back is growing in importance, filling in the gap of the 50-hour work week that I used to have, and and now it's 30, and now I give back other time. That's awesome. That's great.
1: So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Bob?
2: That's a very easy one. Don't be stupid like you were until you were twenty-five when you decided <laughs> to go to law school. You know, it's okay to have some good times, but you know, it would have been better to start my career a little earlier than at age twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe at fifteen, I I should have stopped doing some of the stupid things I did. But um, that's for another podcast as to what those might have been. Uh, people will have to keep wondering. Uh, so, if you could post
1: a statement. On a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say about?
2: I I am probably the only interviewee you've ever had who actually has posted a sign on the belt. Oh, really? Yes. That's so so my my response is less about what I would do than what I did do. Okay. I mentioned that I went to Gonzaga High School. Gonzaga for many years had an intense rivalry. With St. John's High School, also in the district. Of course, they still do, don't they? They still do. It's not quite as intense as it was then. Every year, about this time of the year, actually early November, there would be the annual Gonzaga-St. John's football game. And the spirit at Gonzaga and at St. John's as well was intense in both regards. Well, we at Gonzaga had a tradition of putting signs up throughout the city, go Gonzaga, beat St. John's. And so we would take bedsheets. We would spray paint, <laughs> go Gonzaga, beat St. John's. And I oh, that's I had the privilege of posting, hanging a bed sheet from the bridge over the Beltway right near Kensington there that said, go Gonzaga, beat St. John's. So that near the is. The
1: temple?
2: Yeah, near the right. temple, exactly. with w- The same place where they posted, the, the, the girls' high school posted the free Dorothy. Free um, Dorothy? Yeah, yes. right, exactly. <laughs> well, well, we had a go Gonzaga beat St. John's sign there at one time. So again, I don't know what I would post today, but I know what I did post uh, 50 years ago, 60 almost. Yeah,
1: That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Bob. Really appreciate your commentary and thoughts. And uh, thank you for joining me today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored. As I said, you know, being called an icon, uh, you know, suggest to me I'm washed up and I don't want anybody to believe that but I am absolutely honored and I commend you on your work in doing this whole podcast thing it's, I hope that it inspires just one person in, in any way thank you Bob thanks a lot